So I just got to ask you, wasn't Easter awesome? And all the flowers were out, the eggs were out, the birds were singing, spring was coming. It was just so beautiful, you know, it was like everything was right with the world. And the buffets, you know, you go to buffets and there was all this food and it was just like, what an amazing time, you know. It was just like, it seemed like everybody was just together in love and harmony and peace. But you know, the best part about Easter is the chocolate. I mean, incredible chocolate. And my personal favorite all the way from England, those Cadbury eggs. Oh, Talk about that beautiful Cadbury egg with that amazing fondant filling. The cream, both orange and white, makes you feel like you're eating a raw egg. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) The way it dribbles down, you know, it's just remarkable. But you know, there may be those of you, you just don't like eating eggs, you know? Eggs make you sick. So the Cadbury company, I mean, it's just so amazing. Easter time, they come up with this thing called the caramel egg. Filled with caramel, just goos out. Solid sugar and just amazing, amazing. But you know, there are those of you here who just, you know, you don't like getting all messed up, you know? You don't like all that goo. And so the Cadbury Company, they roll this thing out also at Easter called these mini eggs. You just pop them in your mouth and they just melt right there. And you get that Easter feeling, you know, just coursing through you in the sugar high. It's just remarkable. But then, you know, We've been told that people really crave three things when they eat. Salt, sweet, and crunch. So they've come up with one more, the Oreo egg. Oh, my. It's just amazing. Comes in a little plastic thing to protect that crunch. Oh, you know, I just wish they'd keep this stuff coming all year round, you know, so we'd get that Easter feeling going, you know. So isn't that a little ridiculous? I mean, I'm sorry, I kind, of, I kind of got carried away with myself there. But, you know, that whole riff on what Easter is for some of us, some people, it's about as ridiculous as our thinking that Easter is just one day that we celebrate. Woohoo! Christ is risen. Because, in fact, Easter is something that kind of needs to be celebrated at all times. You know, we, we, we had a great day here on Easter Day. I don't want to deny that. You know, the little panels, the secret panels back there were pulled back. You know, if you haven't been here long, there are these secret panels right behind the team. And there's a baptism tank back there. And a whole bunch of people got baptized. Any of those people here today who got baptized on Easter Sunday? Yeah, somebody up in the back. And, you know, there were testimonies. It was just such a moving service. Pastor Tom preached a great sermon. And I don't know what you did afterwards. Uh, Some of you may have gotten together with family or friends, maybe. We had the the joy of going down to Providence to be with my daughter and son-in-law and our grandkids who, like, I call the love I have for those two, like, I call it crazy love. So any time to get together with them is just amazing. We got together, we just kind of talked about the goodness of God and all the stuff he's done for us. It was just an absolutely wonderful day. But as great as Easter was back there on April 16th, The resurrection not only was, but also is now and today. We need to celebrate the risen Savior today and every day. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is what I'm calling 
the rest of the resurrection. Now, there's a little play on words here because, yes, this message is part five of our sermon series entitled Rest for Your Soul, describing how we come to experience the rest that Jesus invited us to when he said this, and this applies to everybody in the room, at some time or another, he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So what you hear about the resurrection today will bring rest for your soul. It's like Jesus is inviting you to an, another element, another dimension of that rest. Because Pastor Tom on the first week preached a sermon about how we live in this crazy, mad, mad world. A culture that has so many advances on so many levels, technologically particularly, but how we seem to be more and more stressed and more and more anxious. And then the next week, Liz, who wrote the sermon, and Paul, who delivered it, they talked about that invitation that Jesus said, come to me and find rest. But this rest of the resurrection that I'm going to be talking about, what you can receive, is based on the rest of the resurrection. Those aspects of the resurrection story and reality that I think we have forgotten. Those told in today's reading from Acts chapter 1. And in the preaching of the early church, because you know the early church did not say this to people. Jesus died for you so you could go to heaven. Why don't you place your trust in him? Their primary message was not only that, but they particularly focused on Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Why don't you join him? in new life today. So let's pray into that now. Lord, I pray today that indeed there would be rest for our souls as we hear about the rest of the resurrection, about this reality that wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago or back on April 16th, but something that's going on here and now and continues until that day when the resurrection will become apparent for all of us and there'll be something amazing that will indeed cause our souls to explode with joy and with a sense of, of our being fully at rest and fully energized for a new life. So pray that, that some of that would come in to be with us today. Send the Holy Spirit, Lord, to activate your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you'd like to open your Bibles, however you do it, electronically, or if you want to use the Bibles in front of you, I think it's page 770, you'll find the Acts of the Apostles, as it's so called. But that title actually was a pretty late title that folks came up with. It's accurate. It describes the Acts that the Apostles did. <coughs> but early on, it was simply called the Acts. It was also called the Gospel of the Holy Spirit, which is also an accurate description because you'll see the Holy Spirit do amazing things with the apostles and with those first disciples of Jesus. But I'm interested to find it was also called the Gospel of the Resurrection. And I gotta tell you, it's not all about what happened on Easter Day, so there must be something more to this resurrection, what I'm calling the rest of the resurrection. So let's pick it up in verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, let's stop there just for a moment. Who's talking here? Who's the I? Well, whoever he is, he wrote a former book. And he was writing to a guy named Theophilus, whose name is not a Jewish name. It's a Gentile, non-Jewish name. It's a Greek name, and it means somebody who loves God. 
Well, now it turns out that the third gospel, if you go back two books, you find the third gospel at the very beginning is also written to this Theophilus, who's addressed there as most excellent Theophilus, suggesting he was a person of high position. Maybe he was a patron of Luke, as we'll find out his name of the author. He was a patron who basically made it possible for him to write these two things. Now, from very early on in church history, the author of both the Gospel and Acts has been identified as Luke, who was a companion of Paul and his journeys that are described in the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, we see him there at various points because his language changes from a description of they did this and they did that to we did this and we did that. And in fact... Paul describes him in Colossians 4.14 as a physician. So it's interesting. He says in the introduction to the gospel that he's writing an orderly account, sort of like a good doctor who's kind of analyzing what went on and writing this orderly account of what happened. So this book of Acts, which was written, by the way, just a mere 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it continues the resurrection story. Picking up where the gospel ends. It details the 32-year story of the resurrection of Jesus in the life of his people. When the Holy Spirit brings that life to and through the acts of the apostles and those first disciples. So in short, we're going to hear in the book of Acts, if you read it, about the rest of the resurrection. Again, let's go back to the beginning here. He says in his former book, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So many convincing proofs that he was alive over a period of 40 days. I think most people don't realize that the resurrection wasn't just on Easter Sunday and then he was out of here. He hung around for 40 days in his new body. So, for example, over those 40 days, we're told, for example, that at the tomb he appeared to Mary Magdalene, his friend. John tells us about that. Then he appeared to the other women friends he had at the tomb, and there were two men who were dressed in white, Bible code for angels, who told them that he wasn't there, that he'd risen from the dead. Then he appeared personally to Simon Peter, privately, probably for good reason, because Simon Peter, the leader, had denied him three times. That's told in Luke and 1 Corinthians. Then he appeared to two people who were walking away from Jerusalem, going to their home um, in Emmaus, a town some distance. They were very discouraged. Jesus drew near to them, to this guy named Cleopas, and it was probably his wife. And when they invited him into their home and he broke bread with them, suddenly they recognized it was Jesus, and then poof, he vanished out of their sight. Then later on, he appeared to 10 apostles, not 11, the 12th that died, remember, Judas Iscariot. He appeared to 10 of them. Thomas wasn't with them in the upper room where the doors were locked, and he appeared in their midst, if you will, coming through the walls. Then a week later, he appeared with the 11 apostles, and this time Thomas was with them, and he said, go ahead, touch me, put your hand in the mark of the nails, put your hand in my side. 
Then sometime later, he appeared to seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee, as recorded in John. He cooked them breakfast and taught them again. Then 1 Corinthians tells us he appeared to 500 people at one time. We have no details about that. And then we're told in Matthew that he appeared to a group of disciples at the Mount of Galilee. And then later on, he appeared to James, his own brother, who was probably the last to come to believe in Jesus. You know the way your brother and sister is? You sort of say, yeah, you're Mr. Big Shot. And so he had a personal appearance to James. So in all of these ways, and perhaps many more that are not recorded here, Jesus appeared. In each case, he demonstrated convincingly, it was a big deal for him, that he was alive in the flesh, physically, It's described as flesh and bones. He was material. He was matter, shall we say. My favorite is when they look at him and they kind of go, are you real? And he says, anybody got any fish here? Anybody got something to eat? And so they gave him a fish and he started eating it, you know. And you can imagine they're kind of going. And they watch as he puts the fish in his mouth and he chews it and he swallows it. And they go, this guy is real. This guy is real. That fish just went in and it didn't drop out, you know, down here and so on. You know, I mean, they're just, I love this whole thing. The physicality of the resurrection. He did it over 40 days in his new body. Why? Well, there's a lot in the Bible that uses the number 40. The number 40, for example, shows up in the story of Noah and the ark. It rained for how long? 40 days. 40 nights. Moses is on the mountain. How long? 40 days. 40 nights. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. Now, each of those things are really important events. The flood is important. The giving of the law is important. The temptation of Jesus and his launching and the power of the Holy Spirit into his ministry is important. Suffice it to say, a lot of speculation about 40, it means something important is happening here. So here's the deal. Something important is happening that Jesus sticks around for 40 days. You should pay attention to it. I believe that the rest of the resurrection, those 40 days in body, shows us that the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and your resurrection, if you are in Christ, is a physical thing. He didn't just vaporize on Easter Day, sort of say, beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here, you know? No, the message of Easter is this. Christ has risen from the dead, the empty tomb over the 40 days in body. He remained in his body to show us that resurrection is physical. And in fact, the church has ever on insisted that the resurrection of Jesus was in the body. Heresies, which are false teachings, have sought to say, well, that didn't really happen. You know, it's more of a kind of a resurrection idea that he kind of came back to life. In fact, all of that Bible stuff is kind of, you know, gee, you can't really believe all that. I mean, dead people don't rise. But it's the idea of Jesus that continues on. His teachings, his morals, that kind of stuff. You see how it goes? It just sort of devolves from there. But the scripture is really clear. And I'm afraid you and I have been brainwashed by the funerals we've attended and the places we've gone where sort of the idea is that when a person dies, including a person in Christ, that somehow 
That bad old body is gone, and now the spirit is set free. There are poems about this. There's horrible things that are read at funerals. Don't let them read stuff like, uh, like that at your funeral. Let them tell the real Bible story that if you are in Christ when you die, you will resurrect in the flesh, in the body. And it's important, it's critical, because the church insisted on it correctly, that this is the Bible teaching. It's not just an idea, it's a reality. That sin and death, which occur in the body, are defeated in the body at the cross. And it further it asserts that when a believer in Christ dies, he or she will also be restored physically and not just spiritually. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 says the following, So it will be as it was with Jesus at the resurrection of the dead of all people in Christ. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, the body is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. When the perishable has been closed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of Easter, the resurrection. But who has the victory? All you got to do is recall that famous verse from John chapter 3. Used to appear at baseball games and football games behind home plate. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Victory over death, eternal life in the body begins when a person believes and receives him and it continues in the body in this life and in the new body in the next life. It's a wonderful thing to know that God lavishes that kind of love on you. Last week, Pastor Lou spoke about being, finding rest in the fact that you are a child of God and particularly called a son of God, whether you're male or female, because in the culture in which this was written, it means that as a son, you received the blessings that came from the family. They were conferred to you. And so men, women, children in Christ receive all the blessing of God including the blessing of this amazing new life. The rest of the resurrection gives us the rest of the resurrection. It means that you don't have to worry about death. Jesus died for you to forgive you your sins, to remove the barrier that would keep you from being able to enjoy him in this life and to enjoy him forever. And he rose for you in the body so that you can have life with God now in your body and then rise to new life in your new body, made new like Jesus was. Now Jesus had this new body, right? But it was recognizable. The reason why they didn't recognize him at first is because dead people don't come back from the dead, right? When you're dead, you're dead, right? So that's why they had a hard time recognizing, not that he was some kind of alien creature with horns on. No, it was Jesus. He said, go ahead, touch me. Look, there are the nails right here. This is the spear in my side. They went, oh, it's Jesus. So it was similar, and yet it was different because he could appear and disappear. He could go through locked doors. He could be here. He could be there, and so on. And so it will be with you. Now, now we don't know what it's going to be like, but it's the same deal that this body that I have 
which unfortunately some of us have been taught to despise our bodies. We've been lied to by the culture because you're not the right shape or the weight or whatever it is. Or you're too this or you're too that or whatever. Too this or too this. This body is a gift from God. And it's going to be restored. So we're called to take care of it. Now, when we have our new bodies, we'll be recognizable. I don't know what that's going to look like for a child that didn't make it to life or for an old person. Will they look old or young? I don't know. We don't know that. But whatever it is, we'll be recognizable. It'll be the same, but different, renewed, made new, made completely new. So you don't need to worry about death. Your new life will be in your new body. Because I know there are a lot of people, probably in this room, there are a number of people who are very worried about dying. In fact, the book of Hebrews in chapter 2.15 says that there are people who are subject to lifelong bondage because of their fear of death. I know because I was one of them. From as early as I can remember, I knew I was going to die. And little kids aren't really supposed to focus on that, but I did. I was totally terrified of dying. Because here's my image of dying. I thought that when you die, that's it. It's over. You're done. You get annihilated. Now, that's one theory of what happens to people not in Christ when they die. But then there's also other things that the Bible says about being in hell and punishment and all that kind of stuff. But I got to tell you, the annihilation thing was the thing that just freaked me out as a little person. To think about me no longer being, not being able to think, not having a consciousness, being gone. That just kept me awake at night. I was so frightened and terrified. And so, frankly, when Christians told me about this idea that when you die, you leave your body and you become some kind of a spirit and you fly around and you have wings and sing songs all day, uh, that didn't do much for me, I got to tell you. In fact, I don't think the message these days of Christ died for you so you could get into heaven, I don't think it plays anymore. I really don't. I think a lot of people say, I really don't care about that. I want to know what's going on here. I'm interested in this. Because in fact, I think the message we've said about heaven is this kind of disembodied thing. That we just sort of hang around in an eternal worship service. Now don't get me wrong, I love to worship. But again, worship isn't just what we do here. And certainly we're not supposed to be doing this for an eternity, right? I mean, you know, I'm not going to keep you all that long, right? But the reality is that worship is whenever we give ourselves to God. Now here, of course, we're focused. But out there, man, we can be worshiping God. That's our spiritual worship. It's when Romans 12 says we give ourselves, yield ourselves, offer ourselves to God. So, yeah, what we're saying here is that the future life is far better than I think most of us realize. There's just this sense that you're not new life in Christ will mean that you and this whole creation, this cosmos will be restored to what you and it were meant to be. Romans talks about how all creation is subject to bondage. The trees, the grass, the plants, the flowers, all the stuff that we talked about with Easter, all of that is subject to bondage because of human sin. It's not the way it was designed to be in creation. It's not what it was like in the garden. And the Bible says in Romans that it's waiting, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the children of God so that it can be set free from its bondage. Everything is going to be restored. We're going to see things. We're going to see trees the way they were designed to be. We're going to see grass the way it was always meant to be. And we too ourselves 
will be renewed. It's a huge thing. And all the cosmos out there is going to be restored. I have a sense that when Jesus rose from the dead, there was this kind of sense that all creation said, all right, here we go. We're going to get back to what we were designed to be before this mess was brought into the world by human beings when they fell. Oh, man, it's going to be amazing. The weirdest thing for me is that a guy who spent most of his life being terrified of death, I'm looking forward to this. This is good news. This is excitement. This is the best thing that's ever going to happen to us. Getting there may be hard. I understand that. But it's going to be like kaboom. It's sort of like, you know, going into hyperspace, you know. Bam. Whoa. It will be amazing. So you don't have to worry about death. When heaven overtakes earth and we rise, man. Now, if you're worried about this, please get in touch with me. I can talk to you about this. Or talk to somebody else about it. Confess it because it is a bondage. If you are afraid of dying, now everybody's, I, I got to say this, everybody's, you know, I mean, it's not like, woohoo, I want to die. No, but, but I'm talking about if you are in bondage, you know what that's like. It will keep you from having the fullness of life that you're meant to have here. I don't want you to have that. I want you to enter into the rest of the resurrection. But wait, there's more. There's more. Let's pick up on a phrase that we passed over before. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. So uh, Luke wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Well, what's that, you may say? All right, go down to verse 9. Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. The final appearance of the resurrected Jesus on earth were told simply that he was taken up before their very eyes. Again, he didn't just dematerialize. He was physically lifted up before their very eyes and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, clouds are interesting in the Bible. On Mount Sinai, there was a cloud. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a cloud. It's the presence of God. So a little explanation is needed for these people who are kind of going, whoa, what is happening here? This guy is being lifted up in our sight. If they thought it was amazing, this resurrection body before, now they're going like, whoa, this is amazing. So remember those two men in white who were with the women at the tomb? They're angels. They come back, and they're explaining to Jesus' followers the rest of the resurrection. Verse 10, they're looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going. You know, their mouths are hanging open. And, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood bef before them, beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, aha, there it is, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. In fact, there are other parts in the, in the New Testament that talk about the return of Jesus coming on the clouds. And that it's a physical appearance that every eye will see him, not a spirit, not some kind of apparition, but the physical Jesus will be seen by everybody simultaneously. How do I know? How do I, well, how's that work? I don't know, but that's what the Bible says. And so there will be this return again. Jesus was taken up into heaven. He will come back physically in the same way that he left. In short, Jesus was taken up physically into the presence of God, 1 Peter 3.22 and elsewhere. Jesus has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. 
Now, there's a very real surrealist painting that's done by Salvador Dali, who was not a follower of Jesus. And this is kind of weird. Just don't, don't look at anything except the soles of Jesus' feet. That's what they were looking at. Probably had sandals on. So this is what it looked like as they were watching him ascending and going up into the clouds. You see, this, friends, is one of the most neglected aspects in the story of Jesus. It's called the ascension, which many churches will celebrate this coming Thursday. Why? It's 40 days after April 16th. In fact, many churches have since Easter continued the celebration of Easter for the 40 days. They're saying that Christ is risen. Christ is risen each and every week because the ascension is the climax of the resurrection. Jesus physically returning to his rightful place at the throne with the Father and the Spirit, both as a man and as God. He doesn't shuck his manhood to return to his godness. He brings both with him. The incarnation of Jesus, God becoming a man, now is with God. So we are represented at the throne of God by Jesus, the man, God. And so the resurrection continues right now at the throne of God. That's why I remember being confused when I heard this statement, which is sort of like the customary greeting that Christians have said about the resurrection. It goes, Christ has risen, he has risen indeed. And that's true. And that's sort of like the greeting. But I remember thinking, has risen. There's something not quite right about that. Because the classic statement of the Christian faith, practiced and preached by believers ever since, is Christ is risen. Not Christ has risen. He is risen. And it's kind of a funky expression, Christ is risen. What do you mean? Well, it's a rendering of a particular verb kind of thing in both the original language and in English, which says that it happened, but it continues on into the present. It was, and it still continues to be. And the only translation that has it correctly, in my estimation, is the good old King James Version. You can check it out. Christ is risen. I understand uh, contemporary translators are saying, well, people don't talk that way anymore. I get it. But it is something that continues on the throne. Not only Jesus rose those many years ago, but that he remains risen now, raised, ascended, seated in glory as the ruler of all. And so the classic greeting worldwide goes like this, and I want us to practice it. Hallelujah, Christ is risen, and we respond, the Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah. I want you to try that with me. I'll say the first part, you say the second. And say it with gusto. Say it as if you mean it, okay? Here we go. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Go further. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Yeah, you can practice that with people now. When you see somebody, hallelujah, Christ is risen. If they're a Christ follower, they'll probably say, uh, hallelujah, the Lord is risen indeed. And then if you really want to take it to an extra thing, there's some parts of the world where when people say that to each other, they kiss each other on the cheek three times. You're nodding your head. You know about that. Okay, check it out. Try it out. That might, that might be something great for coffee hour. Try it out down there. <laughs> As you got your mouth full of Cadbury eggs or something like that. Okay, so it, it's, 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 
It's, it's, it's amazing that, that Christ is risen from the dead. He's risen to reign. There's a bodily ascension to the throne. Jesus rules as the God-man over all aspects of your living. God has exalted him to the place, and he's been given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Jesus is Lord over everything, and not just the spiritual, like our worship life or our spiritual life, whatever that is. There's no such thing as a spiritual life. Everything is meant to be a spiritual life. There's no separate spiritual component. Christ was Lord and is Lord over everything. And he wants to be reigning over your life. Every aspect of your life, from the most mundane to the most sublime, is meant to come under his supreme authority and rule. Colossians 3.17 reminds us that whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you see, this rest of the resurrection brings the rest of the resurrection. It means you don't have to stress about living like other people do because Jesus is on the throne. He's got your life under his view. And as you submit it to him, he will take care of it. Why? Because he is also remaining as a man. He understands, if you will, physically the struggles of your life. He knows what you're going through. He's laughed and he's cried. He's suffered pain. He's rejoiced. He's lived. He's gone through death. He's like you and like me. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us, but one who in every respect like we are has been tested, has been tempted just like us. As God, he also has the power to work in our life. He not only sympathizes and empathizes with us, but he can do something about it. He's the God-man. He can change us. He can change our circumstances. He is at the throne primarily to pray on our behalf, says Romans 8. He is praying, asking God to move in our lives, the Father to move in our lives. And the Father, as we know, loves to answer the prayers of his son. So we join him in that prayer. Now, as some of you are aware, my wife Hallie and I are going through a challenging time. She has an illness, a disease, uh, which has a, um, a pretty lousy prognosis. So, you know, we could sort of say, well, you know, God's only concerned about the spiritual stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll let him take care of that. No, 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 no. We are appealing to him for healing in this life. And we're grateful for people who are praying in that way. But we also know that there is going to be a healing in death. And we know that the God that we love is a great God. And he is a good God. And so with all the thousands of details that we have to go through and the changes that we've been through since she's gotten this illness and it started kind of progressing and moved along, we've trusted him for everything all along the way. And all those decisions we've submitted to him from the most mundane and tiny things having to do with our physical life to the larger decisions about, you know, how are we going to do this life? What's it going to be like? It has made such a difference to us to know that the God that we worship understands us. He knows what it's like to be weak and to struggle. 
He gets it, and he still gets it. That's not a distant memory for him. That's a present reality, and we can pray to him. It has made all the difference in the world. We really practice in our family, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. In our family, when we had little children, we put it simply to our kids, just throw it to Jesus. Whether it be that test that you have in school tomorrow that you're worried about or that little kid at school who just gave you a hard time or actually kind of messed with you, just throw it to Jesus. It's awesome to know the rest of the resurrection. But wait, there's still more. You get the Ginsu knives. You get the orange peeler. You get rest in death. You get rest in the situations of life and Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water. Before many days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, but also in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, during his life on earth, both his life, the 33 years, and then these 40 days, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It was one of his favorite topics and even after all that that he'd done, his disciples still didn't get it because they say, well, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel because that's what everybody wanted. Bring the kingdom into Israel, get those Roman people out, we'll have glory again, and all the world will come to us. No, 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 no. It's going to be different. It's bigger than that. It's the whole world. We're going to go to the whole world. Yeah, we're going to be in Jerusalem. Yeah, we're going to be in Judea, but then we're going to go to Samaria, and we're going to the ends of the earth because this thing, this kingdom of God, is a worldwide, global, cosmic thing. It's a big deal, this resurrection thing that God has done. You see, if you look in the Bible, at the beginning and the end, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, it makes it clear that the original purpose and final purpose of God is the restoration of all things and all people who will bow before the crucified, risen, ascended, and glorified Savior and Lord. The beauty of the first garden will return and will be combined with the majesty of the city of God, including redeemed society and culture, when heaven and earth united by Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to the words of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the whole city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. Note those words. Write them down, if you will. I am making everything new. This is what Jesus is doing now. Yes, in the twinkling of an eye, when heaven and earth are brought together at the end of time, it'll all become clear. But even now, right now, Jesus is working to make all things new. Jesus is working to restore all things on earth as it is in heaven. And he will continue working to restore all things to prepare for the new heaven and the new earth. It is done, said the ascended Lord. It is finished, said the crucified Savior from the cross. And so from the cross, from the empty tomb, from the ascended throne, you and I not only get to receive this renewed kingdom when it comes, what a world that's going to be. We also, need, we also get to work for it in the here and now. Because it's not like we sit around and say, okay, bring it, and we just do our life. No, 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 no. Jesus said, I want you to be working to bring that kingdom now. Obviously, you're not going to get the job done. I can only do that. But I want to see you at work for me, restoring this, all things, all people who will come to this new life. Jesus wants to work out his resurrection kingdom through us. As recorded in the gospel and the book of Acts by Luke, he said, wait for the promised Holy Spirit that my father promised. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in the whole world. You and I get to extend the influence of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdoms of this earth. Whether it be your school, your business, your neighborhood, your family, our country until Jesus returns to bring that kingdom together as described in Revelation. As the two angels said to Jesus in Revelation in Acts 1.11, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven when he comes at the end of time to usher the, in the kingdom in his fullness. But now he expects us to be about that work, that new thing that he's doing. And you know what? Some people think that if you really want to be a kingdom worker, you've got to do something sort of clergy-like. You've got to get some kind of religious tag on your name. No, the reality is we do what we do, but only you can do what you can do. Only you are in the workplace that you're in or the school that you're in. That's a place that people like me can't go and do a Jesus thing, but you can do that. You can do a kingdom thing wherever you are, in your neighborhood. As you're driving home today, you can do a kingdom thing. It's amazing. This is what, this is what the resurrection involves. And, and so we are invited to pursue God's mission in the here and now. He wants to work through you. It is finished, but now it's begun. Now it's begun, the rest of the resurrection. Pursue God's mission. He wants to work through you. If the purpose of God is restoring all things in him, then whatever you do at work or school or at home, anything that's not at odds with his purposes can be a part of his mission. Now, some of us here have been wondering about what God's will is for our life. And I understand that. That's something that I occasionally say, Lord, what do you want of me? But some of us want the big picture, and I, I get that. 
But the reality is that it's probably what we're doing now that is what God wants us to be doing. Now, maybe he'll have a big change for us. But I imagine for most of us, he's just going to say, hey, how about if you invite me into what you're doing right now? How about if you let me come in? For those of you who are on the younger side of life, you're seeking to find your purpose just in general. It may well show up in what you're doing now. Only what you're doing now, redeemed by him, as you invite him into whatever it is that you think you should be doing. For those of us who are sort of in the middle portion of our life and we're trying to sustain our purpose in the same old life that we've been living, trust that God can work through you in the same old life that you've been living, but it'll be different if you invite him into it and let him be Lord of it. And for those of us who are on the end of our life and wondering what life is going to be like now that we're on the downward slope, invite Jesus to go down with you and let him work through you as you're on this downward slope. You know, some of us here are what one writer calls Monday morning atheists. We're all spiritual here, but then when we go to work or we go to school or we do whatever we do Monday through Saturday, it's kind of like God's a million miles away. That's the problem, that we don't let the resurrection come into that. If you will give God an inch in where you spend most of your life, he will take you a mile. And you will have a life that you just can't imagine. It's so exciting. And I'm starting to experience that a little bit now that I'm no longer a full-time pastor. I'm in a neighborhood now, not a church neighborhood. And it's just been so awesome to be doing a life with God in my neighborhood, with my neighbors. You can do the same thing. You see, the great creation mandate from Genesis 1.28, that continues, that we fill the earth and subdue it. Every time that you plant a garden or you create order out of chaos, you're participating in that, and that's something that we'll continue to do as God sends us into the world in ways that we can't imagine as we boldly go to places that nobody's gone before. It'll be awesome. The great commandment of Matthew chapter 22, that we love God and love our neighbor, you can do that. Every time that you show grace to a neighbor who's driving you crazy, every time you give preference to somebody who's driving and you say, sure, come in, go ahead, every time that you demonstrate that kind of love, you are participating in this resurrection thing, this expansion of the kingdom of God. And I got to tell you, in the future life, won't it be amazing that the love that we occasionally feel that is not that self-love, but it's that selfless love of God, that will be the only love that we can show. It'll be awesome. So we get to work doing it now. And the great commission of Matthew 28 that we go into the world and make disciples, yes, you can do that. Yes, you can be God's ambassador in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood as you speak and act so that others might come to know that Christ is the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord who wants to invite them into this resurrection thing with you. You can do that now and in the future. Who knows where the Lord may send us, the places that we will go. So the rest of the resurrection is underway. And you don't need to sweat what your life is to be about if you will do whatever it is that you do in the name of Jesus. I want to conclude with a picture. I showed this to you, I think, the last time I spoke uh, in December. It's my favorite icon. And an icon is simply, a, call it a, a kind of a sermon in paint about God. 
So this is a picture of the resurrection. It kind of sums up what I've been saying. There's the resurrected Jesus in his new body. Doesn't he look awesome? <laughs> He's recognizable in the Jesus that whatever it is that you know is Jesus. And the great thing, by the way, about Jesus is that if you come out of a, of a, of a black culture, Jesus is black. If you come out of a white culture, Jesus is white. If you come out of another culture, Jesus looks like you. Even though we know he was probably dark, he was Semitic, he came out of that culture, but isn't it beautiful that we all identify with him because he's one of us, right? So there he is in all of his ascended glory, resurrected power, and under him are the gates of hell. He smashed them. He's going in after places and people who are caught in the grips of hell, and some of you know what I'm talking about. I know what he's talking about because I've been brought out of hell myself. It's awesome. I'm so grateful. And you know who he's got by both hands? He's got Adam and Eve. And he's dragging them out of their coffins. And they're coming. Maybe not willingly, but they're coming. He's pulling at them. And you know he's doing that with everybody that you know. Now some people may eventually break free and say, I don't want it. All right, you do that. And that's the life you'll get. But anybody who says, okay, I'll go where you go. I'll come into this resurrection life. Oh my gosh, what it's going to be like. And the chains that are, and the locks, you can barely see them, but underneath the gates are all these locks and chains that have been broken. The addictions, the self-occupation, all the stuff that kind of has bound us up, that fear of death, broken by Jesus. This is what he does. And around him are all the people who've already come into the glory. They know what it's like. They're praying for us along with Jesus. They're joining in this resurrection life, watching as even now he's raising people to life. And all creation manifested in the mountains behind them is sort of almost gathering around. This is a whole picture. As you go out from church today, you're going to hear some bad news. I, I, I guarantee it. It'll be maybe a text that comes in or somebody's tweet or who knows what it might be that you'll hear that'll disturb you, it'll upset you. Maybe it'll be another string of things that have happened in your life. You say, there it goes again, my life is just a mess. And the world is going to heck in a handbasket. No, don't you believe it? Yes, it is true. There's bad stuff happening. And the world is running down in some ways. But this, that thing, is what's going on right now. And that's the power that's going to win. That's the power that's at work in you. So let it work through you. Have the rest of the resurrection so that you can have the rest of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that your resurrection isn't just a, a day back then or even a day of celebration for us as nice as that is. It's a reality right now. Thank you, Lord, that even as we've been looking at your word, that there's some here whose hearts are being lifted. There's some chains that are being broken and will be broken as we consider the reality of what we've talked about today. Lord, I pray that we would indeed find rest for our souls in all the ways that we've heard about, including this way today, as we really embrace your resurrection and in the ways that we'll hear about in the next couple of weeks. Lord, I pray that you would just drive deep rest into our souls so that we might bring that rest to others and watch it come when you come again. In your name we pray. Amen.